Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. Acts chapter 10 is where we're going to be. And I was just asked, we're going to do a whole chapter today, and the answer is no. (laughs) We're going to do the first 16 verses, but before we go to Acts, we're going to go to Matthew, and we're going to be looking at a message called A New Vision of Salvation, and that's what God was doing in Peter's heart. And I want you to see something about Peter that struck me as I was thinking about his life as a spokesman of the gospel and what he encountered and what he had to overcome as an individual to really see God's heart for the nation. So we're going to keep that in mind as we talk about a new vision of salvation. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we turn our hearts now toward your holy word, thank you that you have breathed it out so that we might breathe it in. Thank you that it's for us to change us, more of your life in us, more of you, less of me, Lord Jesus. You must increase, we must decrease. And Father, that's the lesson I believe you were teaching Peter as he navigated his way through three, three and a half years with you, Jesus, and then you would hand the baton, the keys to Peter and the rest, and he needed to see your heart, and we do too. And Father, we confess at the outset of this message that we don't always see things the way you do, but one of our prayers that we've been asking is that you'd help us to see with your eyes and lead people to us that need to hear your truth and see it. And so, Father, as we look at Peter's story now and the story of Cornelius and the the door of the gospel being opened to the Gentiles, we give you thanks and praise. Sometimes we don't think of it in these terms, but Acts chapter 10 is my salvation. Because I'm a Gentile and without that door being opened, I wouldn't have heard the gospel. So thank you that Peter obeyed you. And thank you that you had a heart all along and you said to the nations through Isaiah, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. There is no God but you. Every other God is a false God that cannot deliver, but you are the true God. Thank you that you have a heart for people. And we just pray that you would give us your heart as we study your word now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, A pretty pivotal moment in the book of Matthew is Matthew 16 where Jesus turns to the apostles and he says these words. This is Matthew 16, 15. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Matthew 16, 16, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I think in the context you can see that the specific uh, subject matter is the gospel going through Peter to the kingdoms of the world. And just to think with me about the book of Acts, Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 Jews came trampling their way to Calvary. Peter was called for, Peter and John sent after Samaria had opened their heart to the gospel and it wasn't until, in an interesting chapter where we wondered kind of what's going on there, it wasn't until Peter and John laid hands on the Samaritan believers that they received the Holy Spirit. 
May I submit to you that that's not the norm. That's not how people get saved. The moment we genuinely are saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. But that was a special case in salvation history because one of the things that had to happen is walls between Samaritans and Jews needed to come down. And so Peter and John go to Samaria and then the Samaritans receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and I'm sure there was another wall that came down in Peter's heart and John's heart. And now Peter's about to be used to open the door with the keys to the kingdom to the Gentiles. In the Mishnah it says Gentiles were only created to fuel the fires of hell. Wow. And if you're not Jewish, guess what? You're a Gentile. And the Jewish perspective on Gentiles, the only ones they hated more than Samaritans were Gentiles. That was the Jewish mindset. Many Jews did not even believe that they could come into the kingdom, or if they could come into the kingdom, they needed to be a proselyte into Judaism, which would mean they had to be circumcised and fully convert into that belief system. Now that's where Peter came from. He was a Galilean fisherman, pretty much a peasant guy who ran into the king of kings and lord of lords and all of a sudden he's going to become this spokesman and there's a lot of uh, work in the heart of Peter that Jesus was doing and would continue to do. And so notice what happens now. Verse 20, Matthew 16. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. It was a matter of timing here. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. There's the gospel. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now what is interesting about that setting is think of what's going on. Peter has just gotten this supernatural revelation as to the identity of Jesus Christ. He's just been given the keys to the kingdom. Now, Peter didn't have the singular keys. Keys are plural. But the idea is he was going to open the doors along with the other, gen, uh, the other apostles to Samaritans and Gentiles. And now who is lurking right there when Peter gives the confession? Satan. Later in 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, Peter would say, your adversary, the devil. Did you know you have an adversary? His name is the devil. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you think that when Peter wrote that, he was thinking of this scene? Do you think that he thought back to moments in his life and thought, you know what? There was another occasion in the book of Luke when Jesus came to Peter and said, Peter, Satan's been demanding permission that he might sift you as wheat. Now the good news is that he has to ask for permission. The bad news is that he was demanding permission to sift Peter as wheat. And the Lord said, but I have prayed for you. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Peter would become a focal point for the enemy's attack because he was a spokesman of the gospel. So guess what? If you've been under some spiritual attack, count yourself blessed in this sense that you're probably doing something right. If the enemy's not coming after you, you're probably doing nothing. But if you're on the front lines of ministry, you can expect a spiritual attack. Now, I announced during Sunday, last Sunday, I said, hey, I'm going to deal with spiritual warfare on Wednesday night. We probably had the biggest Wednesday night crowd we've ever had here. I think our people are interested about this subject matter. They want to know about this adversary. Peter realized that Satan was on the move in his own life, trying to stumble him because think of all that Peter would do to reach these major people groups in the, the book of Acts. He would become God's chosen instrument. Much much like Saul, who becomes Paul, will be the focal point in the second half of the book of Acts. Well, Peter is the focal point in the first part. And Satan was trying to stumble him all along the way. 
trying to stumble his perspective and his passion about what he should do for Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand that we do have a battle. The battle, amen, belongs to the Lord. Back to the book of Acts chapter 10. So as we turn a corner, some of the prejudices in Peter's heart are being uh, pounded away at. The first is he's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. Now I ended last week with a pretty poor joke. I said that tanners were seen as anathema to the Jews because they had all those tanning beds in their house. That was a joke. Didn't go over really well. But actually tanners, and it's still not going over very well, but actually tanners were those who dealt with the skins of animals. And they were always dealing with uh, dead things. And therefore the Jews said they were anathema. And as a matter of fact, that means they basically were cursed. Don't hang out with them. It, It says in the Jewish writings, if you find out your daughter... If she's been uh, betrothed and you find out the man's job is a tanner, you can break the engagement or break the betrothal. And they, they wanted tanners actually to live outside the city. That's probably why we find Simon the tanner who has a house by the ocean because he's living outside of the city parameters because that's the way the Jewish people saw them. What in the world is Peter doing staying at a house with this kind of gentleman? Because I think what God's starting to show him is that the things that are most important to God are not the things that maybe they are always focusing on. And so notice what happens. Now, there was a certain man at Caesarea, this is Acts 10, verse 1, named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. If you have a King James, it says the Italian band. These were troops that had been recruited from Italy. And in another setting, you could say they were the backup band for Sinatra. Anyway... The Italian band, okay. So there was a man at Caesarea. Now what was Caesarea? 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem, 30 miles north of Joppa. Caesarea was a Hellenistic style city that was dominated by a population of Gentiles. So even though it was there in Israel, it was very much Gentile, non-Jewish dominated. As a matter of fact, Caesarea was the headquarters for the Roman administration. When Pontius Pilate was in this area, he would stay at Caesarea by the sea. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, one of the first places that you'll probably visit is Caesarea by the sea. And there you will see ruins that are still there today that you can tour. Among other things, this place was once called Stratos Tower. It was rebuilt in grand style by Herod the Great, complete with a man-made harbor, a theater, an amphitheater, a hippodrome where they had horse races and they would gamble, and a temple dedicated to Caesar. So this is Caesarea, named after Caesar. And that's where it was along the sea. Cornelius was a centurion located in this area. He was Italian. He had been recruited from Italy. And Cornelius was a common name borne by thousands of slaves who had been set free by a man named P. Cornelius Sulia in 82 B.C. A bunch of slaves were set free by this particular uh, leader. And so they started naming their children after this Cornelius. And so Cornelius became a very common name. He was a centurion. You say, what's that? A centurion was the backbone of the Roman army. There were 60 centurions per full-strength Roman legion, about 6,000 in a legion. Each legion had 10 cohorts or 10 regiments in the Roman military. The cohorts were divided into centuries of 100 men. So a centurion had command over 100 soldiers. That's who they were. They, were. they were roughly equivalent to an army captain today. And they were serving under other leaders, but they had a certain amount of authority. Have you noticed that when you read your Bible, interactions with centurions are pretty positive. There's a centurion in Luke 7 who approaches Jesus through his messenger. And he has a sick servant at home that he loves very much. And he, and he seems to be hesitant to have Jesus, who's a Jew, come into his household. 
So he approaches Jesus and he says, look, I have men under my authority and I say to one, go, and he goes, and I say to another, come, and he comes. He says, just say the word, Lord. Just give the command and my servant will be healed. And Jesus turned to the Jewish group. Among them were the apostles and he said, I haven't even seen this great a faith in all of Israel. And at that very hour, his servant was healed. Good interaction with the centurion also happened at the crucifixion site of Jesus when finally, after seeing all the events of the crucifixion, a centurion, maybe the first one to believe after Jesus died, said, surely this was the Son of God. Wow. And now here's another centurion. Uh, Probably a man very hardened by war. He may have been retired at this point. We don't know for sure. But as a typical Roman, what he would have been exposed to religiously is called Roman mythology. Very similar to Greek mythology. If you know anything about Greek mythology, you know there's gods and goddesses. They seem to be fighting all the time. And could you imagine being a person at this time? Not only that, there was Caesar worship. So you had to be devoted to the Caesar almost as if he was a god. Can you imagine hearing these stories about the gods and goddesses and intrigue and fighting and thinking, how can they possibly help me? And they have enough of their own problems, right? Sometimes I think people might encounter the Christian church and feel the same way, you know? How can that possibly help me? Look at those people, right? Well, that was Cornelius. Cornelius obviously had gotten tired of Roman mythology, Maybe he was tired of war, tired of the ugliness that he saw in people. And he, since he was stationed in Israel, he had become exposed to, guess what? The Jewish faith. Monotheism. And the truth about the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, this one true God. And he was drawn to it. Much like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 who traveled all that way to come and worship at Jerusalem. He was a fearer of God. He, there was something in the God of Israel that drew his attention. Notice some things about him. Acts 10, verse 2, he was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household. So he had an impact on his household. He gave many alms to the Jewish people, probably the poor here, and prayed to God continually. Now that's a pretty radical testimony. And that would be a good description of a devout person. As a matter of fact, of the three acts of Jewish piety, Cornelius was doing two of them. He was praying He was giving alms to the poor. There's evidence that he had prayed during 9, 12, and 3 o'clock as the Jews did. The one thing that's not mentioned among the acts of piety is fasting. But we could assume that he probably did that too. Very devout man. The Bible calls him a devout man. But is being a devout man enough? It It really matters what you're devout about. Because this whole story is going to show us that Cornelius still needs to hear the message of salvation. He doesn't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but he's a seeker. He's interested in the things of the Spirit. He wants to know more, and he's being drawn to the God of the Bible. And he's an interesting category for those of us who spend time looking at the Scriptures and thinking about theology, because we wonder about God-fearers in maybe other parts of the world. How does God deal with them? How, does he, how are, might they be categorized? Let me tell you a story. Mahatma Gandhi shares in his autobiography that in his student days in England, he was deeply touched by reading the four Gospels in the New Testament. He writes this in his own story. He says that he was so moved by reading the Gospels that he seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity. Now, this is Gandhi. All right? So here's what he did. He, uh, he was reading the Gospels. Uh, he, he seemed to be seeing in the Gospels an offer or a real solution to the caste system that so divided the people of India. 
So one Sunday he attended a church. He went in for the services and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment about doctrines of salvation and other teachings. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat in the church and they suggested that he go and worship with his own people, quote, unquote. Well, he left the church and never came back. And in his own words, he wrote, if Christians have a caste system of their differences also, he said, I might as well remain a Hindu, close quote. Gandhi attempted to come into a Christian church and was turned away by the people of God. And you say, wow. Imagine the impact that Gandhi would have had had he taken the gospel back to his people. And someone who was probably an usher in the church who had prejudices in his heart pushed him away and he never came back. That is staggering. And I think that's a little bit of what God is trying to do in the heart of Peter and in the heart, uh, obviously the heart of Cornelius is already searching and hungry. I told you last Sunday that I think we should have part of our repertoire being God, let us cross paths with people who are hurting and hungry and ready to hear. So on Tuesday, we're in a prayer meeting and uh, the prayer meeting concluded and uh, Denise was part of that prayer meeting. She was going to run off and do some ministry at the Life Care Center, which she does with some other people in the fellowship. Pastor John just kind of felt this tug and he said, can I go? And he's never said that before, never gone before. And I said, sure, Pastor John, if you want to go, go. So he went out to the parking lot to get in his car. They were going to go separately. And he saw a man wandering around our church property. He was looking into the sanctuary doors. He seemed to be kind of lost as to where to go. So Pastor John walks over and says, can I help you with something? The man is in tears. Tears are streaming down his face. He said, I, I've come here to pray. I, I, I want to pray. I want to sit before God and pray. It was obvious from his look that he was a man from India and by his accent. And so John rushed him into the office and he came and grabbed me. Pastor Michael, come here, come here, come here. And we both sat down with this man and tears are streaming down his face. And he says, um, I just found out that my wife has a very grave uh, medical uh, diagnosis. And I have some friends in my life who told me that Jesus is a healer. Some of my friends from India have become Christians. Uh, as a matter of fact, as his story unfolds, he tells us that he was given a Bible in Hindi, and at the point we met with him on Tuesday, he had read the first seven chapters of Matthew. That's all he knew. And so as I began to inquire, well, where are you at, and how can we pray? And, and I wanted to find out where he was at with the Lord. He told me a couple of days ago, I cried out and asked Jesus to forgive my sins. And I was like, wow. Lord, I just said this on Sunday, and here you got a guy wandering in our property. And so I had been in, uh, in India uh, over a decade ago, and I knew that one of the things that you have to tell people in that kind of system is, you, if you come to Christ, you are rejecting all the other gods. You, know, you can't just add Jesus to the smorgasbord of gods that you have, because th that's what they believe, all these gods. I said, you have to repent of that, Reject that as false and turn to the one true God through Jesus Christ. I said, is that what you want to do? And he said, yes. And I said, well, let's pray. Right there in the office, Tuesday, you guys, this Indian man opens his life to Jesus Christ. So he shows me his phone after and he says, you know, we've been doing all this stuff with the medical reports. And he said, I sent a text to my wife and I said, you're going to be okay. And my wife responded in a text, Amen. And he said, Pastor Michael, we never use that word. He said, I didn't even know where that word came from until I read the Bible. Oh, the Lord's been speaking to my life. And 
I'll tell you what, we walked away from that encounter just saying, you know, God has a, has a way of reminding us that what I say from this piece of wood up here is not just words that we can say, oh, okay, and then go on with our normal lives. God is the same. He still has a heart for the nations. He still wants to use us to reach people. And there are people wandering the streets of Corona, hurting and hungry, wondering if there's an answer to the dilemma that we all face as human beings. And the question that we have to ask as the church is, are we ready to share the solution? Would God direct someone my way if there was a hungry Cornelius? Now, a God-fearer is a phrase which has come to be used by theologians for Gentiles who worshipped Yahweh and attended the synagogue but had not submitted to circumcision. The Greek phrases fearing God and worshipping God do not have a technical sense, however, and can be used of any pious worshipper of God, whether circumcised or not. So, so for Cornelius, if he went to the synagogue, he would sit outside and listen through an open kind of... Um, Uh, open window area, but he could not enter the synagogue because he had not submitted to circumcision. So he wasn't a full proselyte, but he was continually being drawn to what the Jews knew about God. And so he prayed and he gave to the poor and uh, he was very much uh, uh, being drawn to the God of the Bible. Now another thing I want to point out to you is it's going to tell us in verse 3 that he was praying and the question is what was he praying about? Look at Acts 11. Look at verse 13 with me. Acts 11.13 says, Peter's telling this story to some Jewish brethren now and he says, and he reported to us, that is Cornelius reported to us, how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon who's also called Peter brought here. He, Peter, shall speak words to you by which you will be what? So it is clear that Cornelius is not saved yet. And this brings up something else. A person can be devout, do charitable deeds, uh, pray, and not be saved. It is possible to be devout about things that you do but not know God. And I would ask you, If you're thinking that you can be saved by your good works, the Bible says you will not be saved by your good works. Good works will flow from a saved life, but they won't save you. So sometimes we put a lot of stock in what we do and how we act and things we do on certain days of the week, but devoutness in and of itself is not salvation. Jesus Christ saves. And if you look at Acts 10, this is the heart of the matter. Look at verse 43. When Peter preaches, which we'll see next time, he's preaching of Jesus, who's the judge of the living and the dead, and he says in Acts 10:43, of him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives what? Forgiveness of sins. You see, Cornelius, as devout as he was, was still not forgiven. Please hear that. As devout as he was, he had not had the blood of Jesus Christ applied to his account. That's why this whole chapter is there. Because just being a pious person, a religious person, is insufficient because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus Christ came into the world, to save us from our sins. Amen? That's why this is here. So here's Cornelius, he's a man of prayer, Acts chapter 10, verse 3, about the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., one of the times of Jewish prayer, the evening sacrifice hour. He clearly saw in a vision, the word vision there in Greek is the same word used for 
what the apostles Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. It doesn't mean that Cornelius just experienced this in his head. The Greek word speaks of a visionary experience with the aspect of what you see. He had a vision. You know what I'm saying now? He saw this. He experienced this particular uh, uh, account, but it was very special. He saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come into him and said to him, Cornelius, can you imagine being in prayer? (laughs) All right, this is my normal prayer time. You're in your prayer closet wherever you decide to go and someone comes in and says, Michael! And he's a real shiny looking being. You're like, that's not what I expect when I go into prayer. But what's cool about this is that this angel shows up and knows Cornelius' name, calls him by name. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. Acts chapter 10 opens up with a new character by the name of Cornelius. And Pastor Michael, we're told here that he is a centurion, a Gentile who fears God and all his household. He's a devout man. And we will see later on in the chapter that he really doesn't know who God is. He's like the Ethiopian whom Philip had met out in the desert. He was reading Isaiah 53. And Philip had said, do you know who this God is or who Isaiah 53 is talking about? So here we have this man praying and we see he gets a visit from an angel of God and he gives him instructions as to what he needs to do. Can you fill us in more about the centurion? Well, Oscar, he, fought, he does fall in the area of uh, a God-fearer, which is a, it's an interesting category of person because you had asked the question before we came on air, uh, we wonder who influenced him. Like, where did he hear these stories? Was he someone who um, attended the synagogue and kind of sat you know, on the outside looking in, as it were? He gave alms to the poor. He prayed. He seemed to be this man who was pursuing God. And it brings up some interesting questions. But I think something interesting about Cornelius is that his his uh, desire is met by God. I mean, God sends the angel. And then, you know, as we'll talk about, he uh, puts together all this detail so Peter can end up there. But as God normally does, he's working on many levels. He's working in the life of Cornelius and his household, but also in the life of Peter and the Jewish nation, because uh, Peter has some biases. He has some prejudices. And Peter sees the vision of that sheet coming down, and he's told not to call what God calls clean unclean. And so God's going to break through some barriers in Peter's life, and he's going to break through some barriers in the Gentiles um, coming to, to faith in Jesus Christ. So there's a, there's a lot of amazing things happening here, and it just shows God's care for all people. And now the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, chapter 8, and now it's going out to the Gentiles in chapter 10. So really we can see the book unfolding as we're told in Acts 1.8. Thank you for listening to today's program. Our mission is to get the truth of God's Word out. This is our passion. We want to impact as many people as possible. And we have an opportunity to expand this radio program, and we need you, the listener, 
to partner with us in prayer and in giving. You can give to our ministry through our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org.